A younger man was nervous driving up to meet his new girlfriend. It wasn't the family of six kids and a dog in a farmhouse with one bathroom, but it was getting there. This younger man was super nervous driving in the country, even though he had done an internship in Los Angeles with Four Lane Highway, driven in Phoenix, went to school in Seattle and actually learned how to drive in Minneapolis. But when he went into the farm community, he got nervous. Why? Because this was a day before GPS and Google Maps, and the directions were as followed. Just go through town and take a left at the dead tree that's not there anymore. <laughs> yeah. And then you'll get to an intersection, and you should see Marion and Raymond's house, you'll really like them. I think they're on the right, and then take a left, and then take a right. So when I was dating Julie, that was uh, my introduction to farm driving. Now we say just get an address, right? And you punch that in, and you can get an ETA, right? You can get different options. You'll know when the traffic is, but not there. I did make it, and uh, everything was all okay. But what would happen if God got an address? What would that be like? You may think to yourself, that doesn't happen. Well, what if we looked at a passage of Scripture where God actually locates himself in a physical space, and when the God of the universe comes, that address shakes. You just sang that. My friend Tim just sang, the King of glory comes. Make wide the door and remove the bars. How come? Because when the King of glory comes, the room shakes. This morning, the message that we're going to take a look at on this third Sunday in Advent is called Emmanuel, God with us, but it's the promise of God's presence and his presence when he came to Solomon. That's always been God's, God's heartbeat to be with people. Think about that. His heartbeat was to be with Adam and Eve, right? He walked with them face to face. He appeared in visions and in dreams to Joseph and on and on it goes. In fact, the whole climax of the book of Exodus, most of us, if we're familiar with the scriptures, when we get to the book of Exodus, we think about the burning bush. We think about the Red Sea. We think about the plagues. We think about the Ten Commandments. But really the culm culmination of the book of Exodus in these great miracles, one after another, is in Exodus 40 where God comes and visits his people through the tabernacle, and he's with them. That's the whole point. He's with them. That's God's heartbeat, and we're going to continue on in that. Just to give you a little context of the temple, it was God's son, his, uh, excuse me, his servant, David, who desired to build a temple for our, our Heavenly Father. It was his, on his heart. He wanted to build a place where God's people could come and worship and and he longed for that. He even wrote a song about that, about desiring to dwell in the house of the Lord. The Lord had said, no, David, you're a man of war. It's going to be your sons. It's going to be your sons who sit on the throne again and again and again and again. And it'll be your son Solomon who will actually build this temple. So we're going to actually hear from Solomon this morning as we take a look at this scripture text. And Solomon spared no expense, no expense at all. Great craftsmen came in, and it took them a very long time to build this, the temple, and it was something to behold. 
Now, one final comment before we take a look at the passage of Scripture on the book of Chronicles. Where does Chronicles stand with the rest of Scripture? How do we understand the book of Chronicles? I'm going to oversimplify it just to get to the point real quick, and that is this. Think of Chronicles in two ways, two important things that will help you. One, think of it as a supplement. Do you take supplements? Do you take vitamins? You should. Your doctor told me that you should do that. But they, they add to your diet. And the book of Chronicles adds to what we know in the book of Samuel and the book of Kings. It adds to that. That's important. It will give a different take on, a, on maybe a same account that you'll find. That's going to be true in our passage of Scripture. But the other thing that's even more important than that is the theme of Chronicles. And you're going to find that in the Scripture passage that we're going to take a look at this morning. You're going to see it right there. And the theme for the book of Chronicles is how God fulfills his promise to be with his people through, you listening? Through his son David and David's kids. And David's kids is kids is kids is kids is kids is kids is kids. And those kids and kids and kids, some of them will be really good rulers, but not a lot. But God will show his favor through his son David. So to prepare our hearts, I want us to pray. And this prayer is from the son of David, who actually sat on the throne. And this prayer is an adaption slightly of 1 Kings chapter 8, where King Solomon prays a prayer of dedication for the temple. Let's pray. Oh God, great God of Israel, there is no one like you in the skies above or in the earth below. You unswervingly keep your covenant to your servant and you relentlessly love them as they sincerely live in obedience to your way. You kept your word to David. You keep your personal word to us. You did exactly what you promised every detail, every time. And the proof is the manger before us today. Could it be that you would actually move in our neighborhoods here in, Chipp in the Chippewa Valley? The cosmos itself isn't large enough to give you breathing room, let alone Solomon's temple. But you do appear in Solomon's temple, and you appear in the sanctuary we're in today. We boldly ask that you would pay attention to our prayers as we intercede and as we lay our request before you. Listen to our prayers as we're sitting before you now. Keep your eyes open to this sanctuary this morning, this place of which you said, my name will be honored here, and listen to the prayers that we pray. Give us ears to hear, hearts that are open to your promise, prompts, hands willing to serve, feet willing to walk where you lead, and come, Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can do. Anoint this message for your sake and for your glory. Amen and amen. I want to invite you to find a copy of the scriptures. There's a pew Bible that's there near you. We're going to take a look at 2 Chronicles chapter 6, the back half of 6 and 7. It's on page 367, and I'm going to give you just a chance to get there. And the first thing that when we observe this temple that we're going to take a look at is you'll see his name and his character all over the temple. And the name for God here is Yahweh. And printed in your bulletin, I, I wanted to help you do something that 
first century scholars or Jewish scholars would do. It's kind of a unique name. And when you write this name down, Y-H-W-H, as we look at the temple that's used, it's actually used 13 times in just eight verses. So it's kind of a big deal. You'll notice that the name Yahweh has no vowels. It's just consonants. So we have to say, why? Why did people write God's name this way? Yahweh is a name that was considered too holy to write. So Jewish scholars would say a name, Adonai, that would refer to the holy name, Yahweh. But what did Yahweh mean? It's used 13 times here, and oftentimes we refer it to God meeting Moses in the burning bush, and he certainly said, I am who I am, but it's not the first time that Yahweh is used in the Bible. I found out this week that it's actually used in Genesis 2.5, and what, what that, why that's so important is it's connected to God creating Adam and Eve. Yahweh is more than just a name for God. It's descriptive, but it's also incredibly personal. That's the distinction with Yahweh. It's personal. What does Yahweh mean? It means I am who I am, but it also means I will be who I will be, what I will be. I am the one who is. Let me repeat that. It means I am who I am. I will be what I will be. I am the one to come. Don't miss the self-existence of God. Don't miss the self-sufficiency of God. All are dependent on him for life and breath and existence. Abraham Lincoln, on March 15, 1865, referred to his second inaugural address in, in correspondence, and he said this, one is not flattered by being shown there is a difference between the Almighty and themselves. That's not flattering, is it? There is a distinction between Almighty God and sinful women and men. Yahweh is a signature name. It's a signature name. And so when you walk into the temple and we read about the temple and we see Yahweh all over the temple, we say, how, how in the world can I understand that? And we see God's loving kindness. The children of Israel responded and described Yahweh with a word called hesed. It's, it's a little bit harder to find in our context of scripture, but I'd want you to box this in if you have your own Bibles. Circle the circle Second Chronicles six forty two, seven three, and seven six. Did you catch that? Six forty two, seven three, and seven six. The word Hesed, H E S E D, if you're listening on the radio or watching online, write that word down, H E S E D. It's hard to translate in English. It means loving kindness, yes, but so much more. It means gracious love, loyal love, eternal love, faithful love. Let me give you two pictures. Picture a dog at your feet just wanting to be there all the time. Do you have a dog like that? I do. I'm not sure if Lucy loves me or just loves the treats that I give her, but I'll go with the first one. But loyal love, hesed love, is also seen in relationships. We got a Christmas card from one of my professors out in Seattle, and he wrote this on his Christmas card there, 90 and 89. We're celebrating 67 years of marriage, and we're still best friends. Wow. 
That's hesed. It's not just a feeling, though. It intervenes on behalf of love done. It comes to the rescue. It's faithful. It's unrelenting. It's the one who cares and sees and listens the kind of love we can hold on to. We see hesed love in Genesis 24:12 in a courtship context. A servant looking for God's action for a spouse of Isaac. We see Hesed in Genesis 39 for an unframed, unjust situation to a convict. Joseph found favor in prison because he was falsely accused. And finally, we see this Hesed, this loyal love, what the children of Israel, when they come into the temple and see the glory of God, we see that in Ruth chapter 2:20 an outsider of the Old Testament covenant, a foreign woman with no provisions. She is homeless. She has no income source. Ruth, in the lineage of the great King Jesus. Look for Hesed. When you step into the temple of the Most High, you cannot gaze at the glory of God, but his footprints, Yahweh's footprints, are clearly seen in this word called Hesed. Well, did you find the scripture passage that we're going to take a look at? Let me read it to you, beginning in verse 41. Now, be circling words. Yahweh is used 13 times. There's only one time where it's not used, and that's 42. It's Elohim. And I, don't, I couldn't figure out why it, was, it wasn't Yahweh. You'll have to do your own digging, okay? I'll give you that homework assignment. Reading in Jesus' name, God's presence. Now arise, Lord God, and come to your resting place. You and the ark of your might, may your priests, Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love, the promise to David, your servant. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter to the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshiped. And they gave thanks to the Lord saying, He is good. He is good. And his hesed, his hesed endures forever. Let's look at Solomon's temple for a little bit and the response that came. First of all, Yahweh comes with fire and glory. Now you may be reading this and saying, Pastor Kirk, help me understand this whole thing about fire. The best way to understand a hard passage of scripture is by looking at other passages of scripture. And you find fire doing the same manifestations, if you will, in Leviticus chapter 9, where priests began their tabernacle, their ministry in the tabernacle, and fire came down, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people. They blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions and the altar. And when all the people saw it, watch this, they shouted for joy, and they fell down. Did you catch that? They shouted for joy. What surprised me then and what caught my attention now was they just didn't, they, they shook certainly out of the fear of the Lord, but they shouted for joy. 
In our passage of scripture, the 17th century English pastor and scholar, Matthew Henry, says this about the passage of scripture that we read. The mercies of God to sinners are made known in a manner well suited to impress all who receive this with his majesty and holiness. The people worshiped and praised God when he manifests himself as a consuming fire to sinners. His people can rejoice in him as their light. Now listen. They had reason to say that God was good in this. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, but the sacrifice in our stead for which we should be thankful. Wow. There would be a sacrifice that would be coming that would be perfect. Who do you think that is? It's the one in the manger. It's the one in the manger. And look what the people did. They thanked him. They thanked him. They responded in, in, in worship. They responded in thanks. You're asking the question, what did they thank him for? I don't know. Maybe that the temple was all done and it was beautiful. Maybe they thanked him that God had favor on their land and was blessing Israel at that time. And he was blessing Israel at that time. Or maybe they were thanking him because of the king that they had at the time. Maybe. But whatever they did, they were worshiping him and praising him. Now it's interesting. There's a little wink here to David. Did you catch that in verse 42? It's one of the themes for the book of Chronicles. David is mentioned here. But specifically, David is mentioned here for Solomon's, that was Solomon's dad. And you'll notice that there's a wink and a reference to dad music. Did your dad have kind of music he listened to? My dad did. He liked Louis Armstrong. He liked Herb Alpert. He liked Bing Crosby. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. And then he'd always go, boom, 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 boom. I got rid of all those LPs of my dad. I could have probably retired had I kept them all. But, but there's a reference to dad music. Did you catch that in verse 6? Listen to what it says. It's right there in the text. Then the king and the people offered sacrifices before the Lord, and King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the people dedicated to the temple of God. And here's the dad music. The priest took their positions, as did the Levites, with the Lord's musical instruments, which King David had made for praising the Lord, which were used when he gave thanks, saying, his love endures forever. He wrote this song. He wrote the song, Psalm 27. Say it with me. One thing, read it with me. One thing I ask from Yahweh, the only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Yahweh all the days of my life to on the beauty of Yahweh and to seek him in his temple. Wow. Wow. God's people saw Yahweh. They saw the glory of it of who he is, this personal one. And they saw his footprints of hessedness. Our friends from the Bible Project do such a great job at communicating clearly greater truths. And I came across this video about the temple and it provides a great transition into our final point that Emmanuel, the greatest temple, has come. Let's watch it. Ready for that?
Bible times. The biggest thing you'd see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool, but even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah, the building was just a symbol, and it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2 and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of delight, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, got it. And check this out. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. But instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the Garden Temple. And like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, did God give up on Israel? Will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create a new temple with a new priesthood. That's when God's presence would fill all of creation. And when the Israelites returned to the land, they did rebuild the temple. But that temple didn't turn out the way the prophets hoped. In fact, later Israelite prophets said that this temple was hopelessly corrupt. So they're still waiting for the ultimate temple. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But Jesus wasn't a priest, and he didn't work in the temple. Right. Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule, was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple. And this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become mini temples. Communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So at the end of the story, do we ever get a new physical temple? Well, not exactly. 
What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. Jesus made some pretty bold claims. He made some really bold claims. John chapter 1 gives us a little bit of context. John chapter 1, 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelled and lived amongst us. The word lived literally means tent. It means tabernacle. He pitched his tent among us. When Jesus came into the world, he said he would become the new temple. And that idea, that self-statement, blew the minds of the religious righteous and was ridiculous to the outsider. You see, Jesus was pointing to a Herod's temple. Herod's temple actually doubled the size of Solomon's temple to 36 acres or 27 football fields. It was a huge structure. And in John chapter 2, Jesus casts out the money changers, and the Jews responded to him this way, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, saying, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. <clears throat> Listen to their response. It took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Can you see the absurdity of that? Jesus said, but the temple he had, excuse me, John wrote, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus' body would be the new temple. And that's why Jesus could say, I am Yahweh, the way that is good. I am the truth, the truth that will set you free. And I am the life that is beautiful and abundant. That's why he could say that. But he went even further. Jesus went even further to say this, that he had always been Yahweh. Always been Yahweh. And that got Jesus in a lot of trouble. It was blasphemy to his listeners. They heard what Jesus was saying. They said, you're not even 50 years old. And you're saying you were born before Abraham? Now listen clearly. Listen to what I'm going to say. When Jesus said before Abraham was born, I am. Listen to this. The statement, therefore, is not that Christ came into existence before Abraham did but that he never came into being at all. But he existed before Abraham had a, had a being. In other words, Jesus existed before creation and eternally. Eternally. Proverbs chapter 8 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's Jesus talking, personified by wisdom, and he says this, when God the Father gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight 
day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. Understand this, Jesus took form, human flesh in Bethlehem, but he wasn't born that day. He took on flesh. He's always been. He's always, always been Yahweh. Always. And his listeners heard that. His listeners understood that. His listeners said, that's blasphemy, but it was true. He's building his temple in us. His forever purpose, our end game, is to bring healing and forgiveness and for us to be united with the king. Wrestle with this. Is it better for God's presence to be in a person rather than in a building? Yeah. You see, through Jesus, we see God's desire to unite with humanity, ethnicity, race, languages, nationalities, a new nation of Jesus' followers. His good friend Peter wrote, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. The nations will be separated. In Matthew chapter 25, there is allegory or symbolism, the separating of the goats and the sheep, one on his right and one on his left. And it will be defined by how we know Jesus. Do you know him? Have you received him? Have you asked forgiveness of sins? That's how it will be separated. So let me close with what might seem like, where are you going with this? It sounds like the beginning of a joke. For the last seven years, uh, on a fairly regular basis, I've been meeting with a group of lead pastors. And this Wednesday, we hosted on a monthly basis. I meet with a group of lead pastors on a monthly basis. We laugh, we talk, we tease each other. And we celebrate what God is doing. This last Wednesday, we hosted it here. I hosted it here on, on Wednesday. And if you walked in, you would see a Wesleyan vegan pastor. You'd see an independent Bible church pastor who's learning about staff. You'd see an, old, an, el, an older E-free pastor who rides a Harley. You'd meet a Baptist pastor who rides a scooter. And you'd meet me, a Lutheran pastor. Doesn't that sound like a joke? What in the world do they have in common? Simply this. Each of us have been rescued by Jesus. Each of us have. And there's good news that's being preached. And we celebrate that. That God is doing his work. Even when we can't see it. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, great king, thank you for leaving heaven for broken people like us. All we can do is worship you and thank you. We repeat what the children of Israel did when they saw your hessedness, your favor, your goodness, your loyalty, not because of what we do, but because we throw ourselves on your mercy and we thank you. We thank you that our sins are upon the one who lies in the manger. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for rescuing us and giving us a word and then wanting to use us to share this good news. And especially now at Christmas, when rawness and 
discomfort in families is right not below the surface anymore. It's in the room. You're the only one who can bring healing. You're the only one who can bring hope. And we rest to that in Jesus' name. Amen.